the trick is going to be to gorge ourselves as much before the podcast begins so that we don't have to talk around our food mm-hmm. while we're eating it. Hello, and welcome to Questioning the Canon. We are the podcast that questions whether the classics are worth reading. Yay! I did it! Thanks <laughs> to your sign. It worked. Uh, hey, Felicia, happy anniversary. Happy anniversary to you. How have we been doing this for 12 months? I don't know, but we have been. It's it's pandemic time because time is literally meaningless. Um, That's true. So a, another podcast we like listening to is one called You're Wrong About, which has uh, host Sarah Marshall on it. Uh, she does another podcast, which is called You Are Good, and that they released an episode, one episode into the other feed. And she does the podcast she does on the side. You are good is a movie rewatch podcast. Mm-hmm. And what I I listened to a more recent episode, and what I liked about the way she did it was she said you don't need to have watched this movie for this episode to be good for you to listen to. It's a jumping off point for a conversation, and it's going to go all kinds of directions there. But the starting point is this movie if you're interested in this. Um, and I liked that a lot. And we talked about that that maybe that's something we should adopt into what we're doing here with this show and this book you know, reread podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Just to really emphasize, you don't have to have read this book. We do a thorough synopsis, or at least we try. (laughs) We try. We do our best every week. (laughs) Um, So, you know, having some familiarity with the book would help, but you don't have to have read it at all. Mm -hmm. We we guide you through the whole process. Absolutely. A a ton of the books that we cover in this podcast are books that I've always wanted to read and literally never got around to before. And Mm -hmm. then suddenly I find myself in a job with two kids and I don't have the time that I used to. So like without deliberate effort to go back and scrape these things up, it's just never going to happen. Right. And so if you have wanted to read these books before and... Never got around to it. Now's the Cliff's Notes. Exactly right. And you still don't want to get around to read or listen to those books. Well, we'll we'll cover you in the next hour or so. And you can sound smart to your friends. That's right, because that's really what it's all about. <laughs> I think that was episode one. We talked about that. It's like, well, the whole point of reading books is so you can lure that information over other people. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of Felicia, what is our book this month? We are reading Mouse, both one and two, by Art Spiegelman. My gosh, nineteen eighty. Through 1991 was this book book written. It was published in its completion in 1991. This is a big book, as we'll get into later. Uh, it has been in the news in early uh, January 2022. Um, but I, I've always wanted to read this book. I am a big comic books and graphic novel fan, to be sure. And I've never read this book before now. Okay, yeah, I had read it. I took a graphic novels and comics books class in graduate school and that's where I read it. Oh cool, cool. Yeah, this is a book that if you're gonna talk about a graphic novel and anything that may or may not belong in the canon, this is that graphic novel to be sure. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh before this, you know, comic books had had such a life, you know, especially in the nineteen thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, mostly as avenues for superheroes, but also other things. Um Mouse was very much a departure and a reflection of the you know, the, the independent comic yeah. that, that were being written along the way, but weren't nearly as popular as this, the other stuff. Um, by the time this book was published in the mid 80s, the term was really the big two. So meaning DC and Marvel, because they controlled almost everything. Basically, it's a you know biopoly of um, voices. Mouse was not part of either one of those. Sure. Because there were independent comics that weren't superhero comics but they were very much in the underground as i understand yeah you got it and occasionally something breaks through um 
I'm, I'm to be to be clear, I'm out of my depth. I am no historian on comic books. I am a big fan. I love to learn more stuff there. But even researching this book, I learned a lot of things I never knew before. Yeah, yeah. I sort of wish I hadn't said that I took that class because. I probably should know and remember more than I do. Oh my God. This reminds me of a meme where it's Sylvester Stallone chasing a woman down the road. And it says a man questioning a woman to name three songs by what she just said was her favorite band. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. Prove it. Prove it. (laughs) Yeah. Especially the woman talking about comic books. I'm so sorry. That's all right. I, uh, uh, let, let me give you a meaningless gesture apology on behalf of my gender. Um, but <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate it. Good Lord. This is the only graphic novel to date that has ever won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, 1992 it won that. There were other graphic novels before it. A Contract with God was written by Will Eisner. And Eisner's like basically like the gold standard. He, he has the award that people get for writing various comic books. Um, but of course, it covers the Holocaust. That is the main crux of it. You know, what was going on in the late 30s and early 40s in uh, Germany and Poland. This book takes place in Poland. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with the term Holocaust and what that word means and why they chose it to reflect this period in time? No, I was actually wondering that as I was rereading Mouse. Like, why? What does that word mean exactly and yeah. why did they choose it? I looked it up. I've heard this before in in kind of forgot it. I was surprised, but the word is actually Greek in origin, even though it basically has been fully adopted by like you know, Jewish cultures. The word literally means burnt holy. Oh. And it's for burnt sacrifices. And the, I believe the idea is that like, if your sacrifice to God was favorable, God will consume it wholly in fire. Whereas like maybe if pieces were left or like half of your cow or your sheep was left, you know, go, uh, we're going back to ancient times. But the, the word was chosen to say like, you know, the Jewish people in some sense were burnt holy in this and okay. horrible atrocity. Wow. It's also referred to as the Shoah instead of just the Holocaust. Um, that's like another common term for it there uh, in how could you avoid knowing these figures? Six million Jews were killed. But that's not to ignore the other several million minority. The Roma were also uh, um, killed in large numbers. Um, Many other minorities Mm -hmm. as well. Anyone in the gay community. Mm -hmm. Have you read other books about the Holocaust in the past or other consumed other pieces of media concerning it? Um, I have only read excerpts from Night and I read excerpts from Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, uh, cool. I've read Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Of course. Um, I'm sure I've read others, but those are the ones that come to mind. Absolutely. In college, we did the book uh, Surviving Auschwitz. Okay. And in high school, we did the book Night. I think it was my sophomore year of high school. And that one really stuck with me. Eli Huizel. Um, yeah. Huizel. Um, very good book. Um, this story struck me much harder than any of those did. Um, Surviving Auschwitz was a little bit more of a, a slog. Um, but I I love this book. I, I do, too. Let's get that out of the way. Right? No complaining sure. here. <laughs> That's right. Read Mouse, please. If you're listening to this episode, listening for complaints, turn it off. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry. We're, we're just not going to heavily critique the Book of Mouse and how it could have been better this episode. Um, but that said, too, graphic novels are something that, you know, you and I both have a deep appreciation for as well. Um, I've got a, you know, arm's length uh, worth of graphic novels on my library upstairs. Swamp Thing, you know, Sandman, Lucifer, kind of the classics there. Um, v for Vendetta. Hey, why not? Yeah. Um, Watchmen. <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got a few. I've got I've got Watchmen and V for Vendetta also. I've also got some books that um, kind of are in the same vein as Mouse in that they're not they're not uh, superhero comic yeah, books. Yeah, right. I've got uh, Persepolis and Fun Home. Okay. 
Have you heard of them? I have heard of them. I don't know them, though. Yeah, they're very good. Cool. Did you ever read Blankets? No. Everyone in college read Blankets except for me. Okay. And someday I'm going to get around to it. But that's like, it was Mouse and Blankets were the two great graphic novels that aren't about superheroes that I never got around to reading. So someday, someday. <laughs> and I'm sure I I want to say, because I'm concerned somebody's going to be like, uh, you guys are stupid. There was tons of stuff going on. There, you know, non non-comic book. Yeah. Non-superhero comic books out. Probably. Yeah. These are the ones that are most well-known. Oh, though. yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, superheroes are going to eat up most of the mind space about this stuff there. But, you know, it's always been a genre where people can explore their thoughts and feelings. And just, you know, if, if you're a talented artist on top of you have something to say, like doing a freaking graphic novel, doing a comic book. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So we don't know everything. This could be my insecurities about a, being a woman talking about comic books coming out. <laughs> I, I love this. I love everything you know. about this. I, I know we don't know everything. I don't know how to arm you better to say <laughs> that you are every bit as qualified as any single other human listening to this podcast. Okay. Thank talking you. This topic. Right. Thank you. Um, but all that to say, I think we should dive in. Let's do all this right, thing. Let's do that. So this is um, a longer synopsis than I believe we've ever had on the show. We covered both the books so a lot happens um for as much as i'm including i'm also glossing over a ton of stuff in order for this not to take up the entire episode so why don't get started <laughs> mouse was written by art spiegelman and it's his father's story of surviving world war one as a jewish person primarily in poland it's separated into two books mouse one my father bleeds history and mouse two and here my troubles began the frame narrative is Art's father, Vladek, telling his story as father and son struggle with their relationship. Vladek is difficult, and Art is easily annoyed and angered by him. Art's mother committed suicide in 1968, which has added trauma to the already strained relationship. Vladek tells his story over several visits. Art has to work hard to keep his father focused on relaying his memories because Vladek frequently slips into complaining about the woman he married, Mala, after Anya's death. Anya is the name of um, Art's mother. Mm -hmm. And he also complains a lot about his various health issues. A main point of contention is Vladek's stinginess. He has plenty of money, but he refuses to spend it on anything he deems unnecessary, which is most things. This particularly angers Mala, and the result is a bad relationship between the two. Vladek starts his story in 1935 when he lived in a small city in Poland buying and selling textiles. He meets Art's mother, Anya, and they get married in February of 1937. Anya's family is wealthy, and, and her father gives Vladek the money to open a textile factory. In, 19, in October 1937, their first son, Rishu, was born, after which Anya suffers from very serious postpartum depression. By early 1938, the Nazi presence was felt in Poland, including a Nazi flag flying in the center of town. Rumors grew of violence against Polish people in Germany, and the violence began to seep into Poland. In August 1939, Vladek receives a draft notice from the Polish Reserve's army. He sends Anya and Rishio back to Anya's hometown of Sosnowiec for safety, having her take some of her valuable collectibles to sell later if need be, which she did. Vladek was only at the German frontier for a short time before he was taken prisoner of war by the Nazis, where he and other Jewish prisoners, starved and freezing, were ordered to do hard labor. Some weeks later, due to international laws protecting P Polish POWs, they were released. Vladek expected to be sent to Sosnowiec, <laughs> but instead they were taken far past Sosnowiec to Lublin. After a series of bribes and talking his way onto a train headed out of German-controlled territory, 
Vladek returned home to his wife and child. Anya's rich family was still doing relatively well. Vladek got back to working in textiles, using business savvy and relationships to make extra money. Conditions for Jewish people in Sosnoviets, I'm going to get it, was worsening due to Nazi presence. By 1941, Nazis were killing Jewish people in the streets. The rest of the family were relocated to a small house by order of the Nazis. Vladek continued to do business on the black market, often narrowly escaping detection by evading and lying. Shortly after their relocation, Anya's parents got a notice that all elderly people were being sent to a community. That community was Auschwitz, where they were killed. In August 1941, the Gestapo ordered all Jewish people to go to a large stadium to register and have their papers checked. From there, they sent about 10,000 people to concentration camps. Because he was young and healthy, Vladek was not sent, but some members of his family were. In 1943, all Jewish people left the Soviets and were ordered to go to a nearby ghetto. Rumors of deportation to Auschwitz were increasing, so some members of the family, including Rishio, went into hiding. However, Nazis were clearing out the ghetto and rather be taken to a concentration camp. A woman who was hiding with Rishio and the other two children poisoned herself and the children. Ugh. Yeah. Anya and Vladek stayed in various hiding spots in the ghetto, but it was becoming increasingly dangerous. Vladek eventually talked Anya into attempting to smuggle into Hungary, but the smugglers betrayed them to the Nazis and they were taken to Auschwitz. This is where the first book ends. The second book contains the same frame narrative. Here my troubles begin. Yes. <laughs> Art and his wife are vacationing with friends when they get word that Vladek has had another heart attack. But he didn't actually have a heart attack. He just wanted to get in contact with Art because Mala has left him. Art and his wife go to see Vladek intending to stay a few days. But Vladek keeps pushing them to stay for the whole summer. While they are there, Vladek tells Art more of his story, beginning with his time in Auschwitz. The Nazis organized prisoners by gender, so Vladek and Anya were immediately separated. The prisoners on both sides of the camp were treated badly, beaten, and starved. But Vladek had skills that would help him survive. A Polish capo in the camp wanted to learn English, which Vladek knew, so the capo protected him from the other guards so Vladek could give him English lessons. He also had access to food so Vladek could eat and also store some away to share and trade. Life in the camp continued this way with Vladek being protected for three months. When the capo could no longer protect him because the prisoner population was dwindling due to deaths from overworking, starving, illness, and being sent to the gas chambers, Vladek found work as a tinsmith, which was considered skilled labor. Here, the story pauses to return to the present-day narrative. Vladek died in 1982, and the first part of Mouse was published in 1986 to critical and commercial success. After a period of depression and struggling with continuing to tell his father's story after his father's death, Art decides to continue. After some time in the camps, Vladek was able to make contact with Anya through another female prisoner. Vladek managed to get a work assignment to Birkenau, which was the camp where Anya was, and was able to see Anya. However, a guard caught them talking and beat Vladek. Later, Vladek volunteered for a job as a shoemaker, at which he excelled. He was rewarded with food again, which he used to get himself in the good favor of the capos and for protection. He eventually saved enough food to use as a bribe to get Anya closer to him, where he could also give her more food. Vladek lost his shoemaking job when the workshop closed down and had to go back to doing hard labor. But after a few months, he got, a, he got his job back as a tinsmith, taking apart the gas chambers. 
It was here he heard the atrocities of the gas chambers. After this, Auschwitz was evacuated, probably due to the impending Russian invasion. The prisoners were marched to another camp, then marched more until they were shoved into a train much too small for the number of prisoners. They were given no food or water, and there was such little room that if someone fell, they were trampled upon. Every day they were on the train, the German soldiers told them to pile their dead outside of the train. This may have been the most challenging part of this entire book for me. It's just like they're doing nothing but standing in these cattle cars for days and days, and then they throw out the dead ones. Like, oh, God. And every day, and then they had more room to stand. Hmm. So it's like you've got these people who might have been your friends dead, but now you get to breathe a little. And Vladek took a blanket, and he made like a hammock for himself off of some meat hooks in the mm -hmm. ceiling. Like, whoa. And he was... Um, drinking snow he would just hold his hand outside of the the car and have snow melt in february 1945 they were taken to dachau the conditions were even worse there and vladek got typhus as he was recovering liberation came in the form of a train to switzerland and it was announced the war was over but they were still in nazi control and there was a rumor that nazis were going to kill all those who had survived However, the prisoners hid in abandoned houses while the Nazis retreated and the Americans came. They were taken to a displaced persons camp in Germany where Vladek stayed for a while and had a relapse of typhus. At this time, both he and Anya were always, at, were always looking out for news for one another. When Vladek found out Anya was alive, he went back to Sosnoviets where he and Anya were re reunited. Eventually, the survivors were taken on a plane from Poland to Sweden. There he had to wait for his visa to the United States and in the meantime went back to work selling textiles and hosiery. After a few years, they were able to go to the United States. Vladek ends his story there. Over the course of telling the second half of his story, his health quickly deteriorated as did his mental state. However, his memories of the Holocaust remained strong up until the end. And the, like the closing line of the book is Vladek talking to Art and he says, I'm tired of talking, Richiev. That's enough stories for now. Yes. One million things there. And Art Spiegelman talked about living in the shadow of his older dead brother for his whole life, that he could never measure up to this perfect child that died. I don't know how old he was when he died, but young. What a story. Yes. So much story. I This, this book is told so well it's like it it's like yeah it's a perfect 10 actually no it's an 11 12 13 like it's doing things i didn't think about this book doing the the way that he gets meta with himself that kind of between parts one and two when he's talking to a psychiatrist and like the um the booksellers are trying to come at him saying like you you know part one was very successful you need to do mm -hmm. this in part two and his psychiatrist is trying to talk to him and meanwhile he's on the page shrunken to the size of a little boy mm -hmm. because that's the way he feels they're all wearing mouse masks now instead of just being mice as they are in other parts of the story it's very meta but it's very touching because like in his complicated relationship with his dad you got a horrible story which is what this is about and how that horrible story still has massive implications in the here and now when he's writing it yeah i didn't include a lot about the frame narrative because i knew we were going to talk about that mm -hmm. a lot um but yeah the you've got the horrible story of the holocaust and also a very difficult story with vladek and art and yeah. their relationship yes because like we want a person like vladek who's been I guess the term would be, we could say he's been purified by fire. Like, mm -hmm. this guy's been through so much, he will surely come out of it as a better human. 
I don't know where this idea comes from, but I, I understand it, you know, yeah. and that's just not true. That's no. not what humans do in these circumstances there. Vladik is a racist. He's yeah. petty. He will, you know, kill you for 50 cents kind of an attitude, you know, right. like. And yeah, Art is very concerned that Vladik is the stereotype mm-hmm. yes. of an old Jewish man. He's he's stingy. He won't spend his money. Yep. He he picks up scraps because he thinks he can use them. Right. If you wanted to see what a stereotypical Jewish person is, the character of Vladik in this book literally is that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not even a stretch. Like, yeah, that's all the things that people think badly right. about old Jewish men. And <laughs> Art talks about being concerned about putting that in the book because he like it's like he's perpetuating stereotypes yep. but that's who Vladek was uh, makes me think about J- Dave Chappelle when he had the Chappelle show um he stopped making it after the few seasons because he said like all these jokes are funny but like and they're based in reality but like I'm not doing anything to improve racism you know yeah. like I'm making jokes about what makes you know the idiosyncrasies about black culture that are funny it's like yeah and they're being laughed at by white people who hate black people like right. mm-hmm. yeah yeah stuff. I love how he maintained Vladek's voice in the telling of the story. Yeah. You know, he would say things like, finally, the police left her go. Yeah. It's not really, it's like a near translation, but it's mm-hmm. not exactly right. Like, that's probably the exact way that Vladek talked in yeah, real life. Yeah, and we know that he recorded their session, so it probably is verbatim. There's a part in the book that touches on uh, where Art asks the question that everybody asks, how did, you know, the Jewish people let this happen? Like, why didn't you fight back? Why didn't you take up arms? And Vladek explains it as best he could, saying, you know, like, we did. We fought back. But also, we we knew if we'd fight back, we'd all die. And we didn't want to do that. There's something about the the way that you romanticize history that you, like, you want to believe that there are, you would have done it differently. You know, but like, no, you're a human just like everybody else. And this really happened. Everything else is fantasy, mm-hmm. you know, and we want to pretend that we understand an atrocity like this, but it's only happened like this, this time. And you have no idea how you would actually be in yes. those situations. But you're ve- some people are very driven to believe that they know what they would do in that yeah. circumstance. You don't know. <laughs> you really don't. You have no idea. There's a part two whenever he's talking to his wife, uh, Francois, uh, where He's he's monologuing and he and makes art the, talking to his wife. Yes, sorry, yes, the part where art is talking to Francois and he says, uh, uh, "In real life, you never would have let me talk this long uninterrupted." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know, yes. he's getting meta and breaking the fourth wall a little bit. I feel like the second book is much more meta. Than Very the first book. well, I mean, because he didn't really, you know, he wrote the book continue. We'll get into this, but he wrote the book continuously over the course of like you know, nineteen eighty two, nineteen ninety one, but the book got released volume one in 1986 and it was a huge hit. So he basically had to finish the book in the light of knowing that the first half of it was very, very good yeah. and well-received. So they're like, that's going to get in your brain too. Sure. <laughs> how do I finish this thing? That's going to you right. I thought it was very bold and a very good choice about how he included his own thoughts. And, you know, I think so too. Up, so it's presented as animals and that would immediately make one think that it's probably like a like a soft and cutesy story and apparently Spiegelman did that on purpose really to disarm you um because there are lots and lots of comic books and comic strips that have animals and the whole point is that it's going to be funny or cuddly and he wanted to basically kind of like get to a deeper level so he presented the um characters as animals oh so you would think more about the story and less about the people exactly yes exactly and i think it worked i'll be honest i think so too he also presented every specific region and nationality as a 
animal. You know, the Germans are cats, the Jews are mice, the Swedish people are reindeer. Apparently the British people are fish, but I don't remember actually seeing that on panel. And the Americans are dogs. The Americans are dogs, exactly. So, Friendly. Yeah, and it, the, the French are frogs, and Francois, uh, like, in the within the, the graphic novel, is like, shouldn't I be a frog? And he's like, no, no, you converted to Judaism, so it's fine. <laughs> All of this, he says in his commentary, is was meant to implode. That all of this is stupid, you know, because humans are humans. Wherever they come from and whatever they look like, they're all humans. So if I present in this way, it'll probably fall apart. Yeah. I'm not so sure he succeeded there, you know? Yeah, I think people really connect to the animals parts of it. Yes. When you say it was meant to implode, what do you mean by that specifically? I don't know, honestly. I'm, I'm using his words, and I've tried to, like, break it down a few times to say, like, okay, but how will it implode? Because at the end of the day, a German person is going to call themselves a German person until the day they die. Yeah. You know, I am an American, for good or for bad. I am an American. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he thought people wouldn't, like, well, if he thought people wouldn't buy it, he wouldn't have done it. Yeah. I think there's something deeper that I have not really gotten into uh, yeah. about that. Because at the same time, like, even to the end of the book, you know, the last page has uh, Art and Vladek, uh, you know, they're both mice. You know, they're yeah. not they're not becoming humans or something like that. No. They're still, you know, culturally Jewish and they are, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. La- last thing I want to mention here is you were talking about when his job was to dismantle the gas chambers at mm-hmm. Auschwitz. Uh, and he was talking and that was his only exposure for really going to those places. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they were made to look like showers. Um, you know, we're going to deglouse you or whatever they're going to do down here. But even on the walls there, it would say things like, remember your number. You know, like your things, he would be giving instructions to these people who were literally just about to die, mm-hmm. like instructions for the next step there. And that's one of the ways to like do crowd control on people because oh, in, so they don't freak out. Exactly. You know, and enough of them would have known that nobody really comes back from this, but they still like, oh, no, no. It says right there on the wall that we're supposed to like go talk to our, our leader after this. Uh, after so we're done we're here. fine. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's horrible. Yep. Yeah. <sighs> so this book, its impact uh, we'll get into its history as we talk about Mr. Art Spiegelman, um, and I've got got so much to say about him. So, Art Spiegelman was born Itzhak Abraham Ben Ziv Spiegelman. So, a very, very proud mm-hmm. name, it sounds like. He was born in Stockholm, 1948, immediately after the war. Okay. Um, so, they got back together, uh, Anna and uh, Vladek, and had him in pretty quick succession. I did like in the book how the Swedes are all portrayed as reindeer mm-hmm. uh, in the few uh, few frames that they're in. His parents, uh, the character we know as Vladek, is actually Wladislav. Um, when he came to America, he changed that to William. And I think that Art made the choice to call him Vladek in the book to basically hang on to some of his past. And then Anya is known as Andizia Zylberberg, the brother uh Richiev was called Rizio, is his actual given name. I guess he changed a lot of these so they'd be a little bit easier to um, pronounce by his readers. After he was born and they were living in Sweden, his parents actually spent a good number of trips going to the continent searching orphanages to try to find his brother. They never did find him because he had, in fact, died. Uh, 1951, they immigrated to Norristown, Pennsylvania, and that was to be closer to Anya's last living brother, who already lived in America. And eventually, 1957, they moved to Rigo Park, which is in Queens in New York City. When they immigrated, he was given the name Arthur, and then later he chose to just shorten that to Art, um, which is actually his name now. 
he began writing comics at an early age in his teenage years, uh, and he was really ambitious for getting his stuff out of there. He created a like a, a bit of a makeshift uh, magazine called Blase. It was inspired by like Mad and Cracked type magazine because he loved like comedy. That was what he really was after. It was like really really bizarre and out there stuff. He was noticed. Uh, he he submitted stuff for local publications, newspapers. The United Features Syndicate actually offered him a job for a regular comic strip when he was very young, and he turned them down. He kind of thought it would be a little bit too much like uh, commercialism, and like he didn't want to end up there. He didn't know what he was going to do with himself, but he, he didn't want to take that route so early. He went to college at Harper College, which is in Binghamham, New, uh, New York. He went there from 1965 to 1968. Early on, he met the art director for Topps Chewing Gum. Now, a chewing gum company like that also made a whole lot of, you know, trading cards and stuff like that. You know, you, you may be familiar that, like, the, the first baseball cards came with chewing gum and came with, mm -hmm. you know, tobacco and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, this was still very much a thing in the mid and late 1960s. So they liked his work and the type of art he created, and they hired him. And he did basically freelance work for them for the next 20 years, starting at the age of 18, which is hella impressive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, That's a lot. That's really young. And for a long time. Mm -hmm. He referred to Topps Trading Cards as his Medici. As so many Renaissance artists, you know, had their benefactors, mm -hmm. Topps was his benefactor that allowed him to create all the things sure. that he did. It's like, yeah. oh, hell yes, absolutely. He got involved with wacky packages, which I am familiar with this, oddly enough. Um, it's, think Mad Magazine, except in trading card form. Like, I, I, I printed out a, a, a whole list of these. Like, Good. Um, Mountain Goo, and it would look like a can of Mountain Dew, except it was like, you know, weird rat, rats crackers, R-A-T-Z, mm -hmm. and it's got like a big rat on the package, but it's supposed to look like Ritz, like something you'd see out of a mad magazine. Like mm -hmm. this is the kind of art and, you know, jokes that he got into, and he was very good at it, and I, I just loved it. Slacker Jack. <laughs> exactly. Like Weekies instead of Wheaties, um, that stuff. Uh, so he also at this time was making a lot of his own independent underground work. He was selling it on street corners and in person. He ended college before he intended to by going into a psychiatric hospital after a brief but intense breakdown. He attributed some uh, pretty heavy consumption of LSD at the time to that. These are his words saying, I was using a lot of acid at the time. Like, no, sure enough. But after he got home, his mother committed suicide very quickly thereafter. Uh, the reason cited that is because her brother had just died. And I think that was kind of the final thing that pushed her over the edge. And I'm, you know, I can only assume that this is a woman who was so badly damaged by the Holocaust that she had endured and that things were not really ever getting better, et cetera, et cetera. So, and she already experienced a lot of mental health issues before yes, the Holocaust. The book clearly demonstrates a number of mental mm -hmm. health issues that she was also struggling with there. So, um, that, of course, your mother committing suicide, that is huge and heavy and horrible. You know, he did not finish school. Um, but there, very soon thereafter, he visited San Francisco. He liked it out there. And in 1971, he decided to move out there to stay. While there, he got pretty involved in the underground comics counterculture that was kind of developing at the time. He came, became kind of a voice for that. He made a lot of uh, his early works then. There's one called Villainy and Vickedness, uh, The Complete Mr. Infinity, A Day at the Circuits, like circuits like in a computer, Nervous Rex. He printed for a couple of uh, 
magazines, Young Lust, Bijou Funnies, Real Pulp. Um, again, very counterculture stuff, you know, in your face, grotesque at times. Uh, this was the kind of work that he leaned to, to be sure. There was one recurrent work called Funny Aminals. 1972, he was asked to write a piece for it, and he wrote the first iteration of what would have been considered Mouse, um, something, a piece about the Holocaust and the Jewish people were shown as mice. He said a quote from that time, as an art form, the comic strip is barely in its infancy. So am I. Maybe we'll grow up together. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Very charming, you know? Um, so he taught cartooning at San Francisco Academy of Art in 1975. Uh, he started uh, Arcade Magazine with another creator called Bill Griffith, 1975. And this thing apparently was very popular. Um, it was a space for comics artists to contribute, submit articles. Uh, William S. Burroughs, Charles Bukowski contributed to this thing. Okay. It was it was kind of like a brief, very intense light that a lot of people look to. But um, Spiegelman actually decided to move back to New York not very long after the magazine crumbled and everybody said him leaving is the reason it fell apart, which, you know, almost certainly was the case. Meanwhile, enter Francois Mouly. Uh, she was an architecture student from France. She was visiting New York on a bit of a, a sabbatical, 1974. She and Spiegelman ended up crossing paths a few times. She had been familiar with a little bit of his early work and was already a fan. But after enough time, kind of some on and off dating, by 1977, they decided to get married. But the reason for the marriage was to end some visa problems that she was having at the okay. time. Now, that said, these two clearly were able to make a very functional and good relationship out of each other, specifically not just, you know, as far as romantic and, you know, eventually parents would be, but as business partners. Okay. Um, Muli saw something in Spiegelman and really brought it out and organized it in a way that really counted. Uh, unrelated to that, she also would later go to go on to work for Marvel Comics a little bit there. So, oh. you know, you, you can't avoid comics and not eventually get sucked up into one of the big two eventually, I guess. So there, uh, Spiegelman had um, a, a, a bunch of pieces that Moly collected and they called it Breakdowns, 1977. That printing was a bit of a fiasco, um, though, because like 30% of the print line was there were so many errors in it that it couldn't even be used. A lot of money was kind of lost. And Moly said, never again. And she oh. said, if we ever do this again, I will take full control. And like, I'll, I'll, I'll be the person in charge of your work, you know? And it's yeah. like, yeah. So money where her mouth was 1981. The two of them went together to create what was called raw magazine. Mm -hmm. Raw was a magazine that was published a couple of times a year. And it was apparently kind of a big deal there. Like, you know, if you were somebody who was in the know, um, if you were somebody who, you know, wanted to read, something deep, something that had authors that you'd never heard before, international authors that hadn't made it to America there. They did their best to suck that stuff into Raw, which um, Spiegelman and Mouly made together there. And in Raw magazines, starting in 1981, Spiegelman started producing the first chapters of Mouse. He had been working on this for a while. 1978, he started interviewing his father to get the story together. His dad had always talked about, you know, what had happened in the Holocaust. He's like, this is a story that needs to be recorded, and I'm going to do it. And it, the ideas have been bouncing around his brain for quite some time. So one chapter at a time in Raw, he put it out, Mouse. Okay. So he did that for the course of about the next five years or so. People read it. Some people read it. It was not a widespread thing by any means. This is a... What do I want to say? This is a very artsy um, production out of New York City. It probably did not penetrate that far. But the New York Times took notice. Somebody wrote a piece talking about if you aren't familiar with Raw Magazine and 
what's being written in there in the pages of mouse, you need to check it out. And people did. And those copies started, you know, disappearing off the shelves where they were available. And about that time, they'd been debating about what they were going to do with mouse as a larger work. And indeed, Spiegelman had been talking to a couple publishers and nobody was terribly interested. He finally got hold of Pantheon Books and they said, yes, we will be interested in publishing at work. Now, that said, there was another iron in the fire here because Steven Spielberg was making a little known movie called Fievel, an American tale. Oh, yes. No. Yes. Which is about Fievel and his family. They are Russian Jew, uh, Jewish people and they were immigrating to America to escape some pogroms and stuff. Now, he felt that his work was well enough known that somebody like Steven Spielberg was probably familiar with it there. And the ideas for Fievel probably sprang up in Mouse, which, again, had been written for the previous four mm-hmm. or five years in, in this fashion. This is unverified on this podcast. I do not know if this is the case, if Steven Spielberg ever heard of Art Spiegelman or not. I can't say for sure, but Spiegelman thought it was so. He says, we need to get this published. We need to get this out in a way that people can consume. So this is where the the kind of the frenzy to push to get it published. And he finally got a hold of Pantheon Books. Pantheon Books was impressed and they said, we're going to do it. And they collected what became volume one, Mm -hmm. um, My Father Bleeds History. Yes. And it was then available in bookstores across America. Now, comic books up to this point were in the, for what they're worth, thriving comic book store. But that's a very niche market. Bookstores, on the other hand, were a totally different market. And this is a book that was sold in bookstores. Mm -hmm. So suddenly, you know, maybe people who do like comic books, but obviously also like books, or people who have never read comic books and never even thought about picking up a comic book, see this thing, like, that looks interesting. And they'll thumb through it and they're like, yeah, I'd read this. It really sold. Like, boom! Wow. It was very successful for what it was. Yeah, sure. And reaching audiences that had never reached before and no one had ever thought to reach before because comic books were like, you know, they're infantile. They're, they're super kids. Yep. As as uh, our, our friend Eric likes to say, you know, co- superheroes are about punching your feelings to death. You know, <laughs> you, know like, you yeah. can get, get over your daddy traumas with your fist, which is right. true and, and, and screwed up. All right, so... That was a big success in 1986. He also went back to teaching a little bit at the School of Visual Art in New York, 1978-1987, uh, for about the next 10 years or so. He gained fame, notoriety. People knew who he was. It was kind of a cool time to be an artist in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, he was still working on and off with Tops, and this is quite literally the most important thing I can convey to you in this podcast is that in 1985, he helped create the Garbage Pail Kids. Wow. Are you familiar with that? Yes. Is anyone not familiar with it? I don't know how ubiquitous they were. Um, my personal story is, gosh, my sister was in Girl Scouts, and oftentimes I would have to wait in the car whenever she'd have her meetings. And fellow Girl Scouter with her was Amber Heipel. And Amber Heipel always had the latest pack of Garbage Pail Kids, and she let me look at them while I had to wait in the car. <laughs> and it was, God, was they're, nice of her. they're grotesque and horrible. I and hated them. <laughs> I hated them. Directly came off of the craze of the Cabbage Patch Kids. It was a huge deal. Cabbage Patchers were like, holy oh, cow. Yeah. It was a craze. This was like the Mad Magazine answer to it there. And Art Spiegelman helped create that nonsense. Um, his daughter, uh, Nanya, was born in 1987. And finally, in 1991, he finished the story of Mouse and released it as a volume two, uh, Here My Troubles Begin. Uh, and then the complete Mouse was released about the same time. So 1991. 
1992, he wins the Pulitzer Prize for this. Shortly thereafter, his son Dashiell is born, 1992, and at the same time, big year for him, he gets hired by the New Yorker as a basically staff writer for artistic things as appropriate, but also a cover artist. Um, wow. He made many of the covers of the New Yorker from the period of 1992 through 2001. Mm -hmm. Some of his more famous ones there, there's one where there's an Orthodox Jewish man kissing what appears to be a black uh, West Indies woman. Um, that was like one of his first, and it was like, whoa, oh, hang on. <laughs> this is like controversial. Yeah, what's going on here? Yeah. There's one where he's got kids getting off the school bus, going to school, and they're all carrying like AK-47s and handguns. Mm. Um, but his most famous one is the cover of the New Yorker immediately after the September 11th attacks. Um, and it's the, the cover looks completely black. But if you look at it for a little bit, a little bit blacker is the Twin Towers. Okay. And kind of recessed against there. And it was... It was pretty cool. I think I've seen that. Yeah, it was extremely famous. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those, you know, one of one of New York's main iconic ways of responding was this cover. Uh, a cool little thing though was that Muli, who had some um, influence, you know, she, she was always really dynamic with his works. She's like, what you need to do is you need to take the antenna that's on one of the towers there and move it so it's right in front of the W in the New Yorker. So like the the spike actually interrupts the word. And if there's a, like a little bit more like psychological break in when you read this and like how screwed up it is. Like, I love those kind of touches. Yeah, yeah. I do too. And I, I love how involved she was in his work. Just like, this is wonderful. Like, got you got a talent that's this good. It's like, yeah, but what if somebody's there to make it a little bit better? Mm -hmm. <laughs> he wrote some pieces on Charles Schultz, Jack Cole, other famous artists throughout history during his tenure at the New Yorker. But in 2003, he felt that the New Yorker was a little bit too capitulant with the Bush White House, that they were kind of like just going along with things that he really disagreed with. You know, you, okay. you, you may remember those times. Like, you know, the Iraq war was like, frankly, it went down a little bit too easy. Yeah. There was not enough criticism of what was yeah. going on. People were so angry over 9-11. We were in a maddened state. Yeah, we were. It's, it's, it's bad news there. I mean, gosh, just for example, do you remember like, you know, the Dixie Chicks? Yes. Yeah. The height of their popularity i can't remember the year i think it was also 2003 but they're on tour in london and natalie main said on stage just so you know we're ashamed the president of the united states is from texas saying i disagree with the things our president is doing you know they could not have been more popular they were like one of the number one country music acts in america and they were canceled hard like we're done we're done with the dixie chicks forever because they questioned the president yeah like so this and is where barely we even. Yeah, barely even. Exactly. Like they, they didn't say anything specific. Um, but this is the kind of tone that Ark Spiegelman was saying, like, look, New Yorker, you've clearly got your own agenda about this stuff. And I don't agree with it. I've got to part ways. He later regretted that he did not make more of a spectacle of him leaving the magazine because uh. <laughs> he felt he probably could have I was like, oh, that's that's good. Um, a couple years later, you may remember the uh, Jalen's Poston Muhammad cartoon controversy in 2005. It, no. it was a Danish newspaper. There were several comics in an issue where they were depicting Muhammad drawn. Oh, I do remember yes. that. Now this I is different than Charlie Gibdo. That was that was like uh, five or seven that years was later. later. Yeah. Um, so this was like one of the first times that people like me had ever even heard. It's like, hang on, you're not supposed to draw Muhammad. Right. Yeah. Absolutely not. That's not okay. They, the Danish newspaper claimed that they were doing it as a critique on anti-Islamic stuff. But well, if that's the case, they did it about, they went about it all wrong. Mm -hmm. if, that, if that's the case, 
But President Ahmadinejad of Iran actually put out a bit of a, a call to say, who can write a response to this atrocity against, uh, you know, Muslim culture and all that? Spiegelman answered the cry. And he wrote, again, for context here, you may be familiar that uh, um, Ahmadinejad is a Holocaust denier. Uh-huh. He wrote this comic that has a mouse, a mouse from mouse, going to the gas chamber, and he says to the audience, and the funny thing is, none of this is happening! <laughs> wow. so, kind of like a gigantic middle finger is, is mm-hmm. what, what he did there, but it's like, that's, I, I like that attitude. <laughs> so anyway, that's neither here nor there. 2008... Um, he worked with Moli doing some children's books called Tune Books that were relatively successful. He's worked on a couple of autographic, autobiographical pieces, Portrait of an Artist as a Young, and then it's the percentage sign, at sign, ampersand, star, exclamation so like point. Young, a young shit. A young fuck or something yeah. like that. Yeah, exactly. B&O's Meta Mouse, which is his commentary on mouse and its popularity. He's still working. He's still alive. He has a couple of interesting philosophies. One is that he believes that comic books are reflective of how we think, you know, because we think in pictures and images that happened. And we also think of the words that were being said. So, like, there is something kind of like wholly digestible about comics. Kind of cool. Um, he's very, very liberal, if you haven't picked up on that so far. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I know, these little things. Uh, <laughs> he considers himself to be an A-Zionist, as far as Israel goes, uh, and he says it is a failed, sad ideal. And I'm like, which, boy, howdy, that's true. Yeah. You know, whatever the right answer was about Israel, it didn't work. So, as far as a book goes, you know, we talk about books that are in the canon, you know, books that are essentially taught in junior high and high school is mostly the the age we're talking about here. Mouse is a book that, as a graphic novel, immediately makes you question, should we be reading this? Oh, sure. Hang on, that's a comic book. I don't know if there's any value in something like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, comic books are extremely undervalued. Uh Right, there are Shakespeare graphic novels. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, my son's got a one for Robin Hood that he read and he really liked. So. Yeah, it's it's a good way to tell a story, especially for struggling readers. Yes, you know, it's, it's like I, I think about, so my daughter Evie is six and, you know, when we read books, I read, I read a chapter a night to her of her book, but if there's a picture, she wants to see the picture. You know, mm-hmm. like kind of like to inform the brain of what's going on. Yeah. So, kind of like training wheels <laughs> as far as the book goes. Mm-hmm. Um, so for younger audiences, to be sure, the problem with it is, like, that really adds a stigma. Yes. That, like, if you're going to read comics later in life, like, oh, you still need pictures, you know? Yeah, like, you still need those training wheels. Right. And once it becomes at the level that Mouse is, it's a companion. It's not a crutch. Yes, yes, absolutely. And there, and there's so many good pictures where it's just like, you're seeing somebody who was hung, for example, at the gallows, you know, like you can see just their feet and the, the person who's standing below them looking up like that's a whole different feeling rather than just to say he was hanged. Yeah. You know? And there's the picture of the children being bashed against the wall. Oh, my God. Yes. That's, right. Yeah. Yep. All the, the depictions of the the, the, the boxcars in the snow mm-hmm. um, were just hard, but it really again, I've read several different big and important works about the Holocaust, none were as effective to me as this was. Like, Yeah, yeah. And that's obviously part of the writing style, but it also is the art. Mm-hmm. The mm. literal art, not the author. Mm. It's both things. Why can't it be both things? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the reason 
mostly that we're talking about this book or that we even thought about it in the first place is, of mm-hmm. course, how it was in the news uh, yes. earlier tw- um, 2022 in January um, when it was banned by the McMinn County School Board um, in Tennessee. Now, a little bit of a backstory uh, to, to n- not necessarily that part, but the, the context in which we're set in here is we're living in an era right now where certain ideas are getting harder to get. There's more work being done to stop ideas. Yeah, than to spread them. And it is scary. Mm -hmm. Uh, Summer of 2021, Texas House Bill 3979 was passed. And kind of the the summary of this thing, it says, it changes public health curriculum in Texas by prohibiting teachers from including controversial topics from United States past like racism and the subjugation of colored people, critical race theory. And did that actually pass? It did pass, yes, and it is law in the state of Texas, although how it gets interpreted and brought down is debatable in a conversation itself. But it exists, and my God, it went through their legislature, and that's horrifying. Now, as putting you on the spot a little bit here, wasn't there a situation in Indiana? that? Yeah, a bill like that, very much like that in Indiana, almost passed, and it narrowly didn't. It it died on the floor, but barely. Right. Um, It would have been... The same exact thing. We wouldn't have been able to teach anything that had um, criticism of race or just a story of race mm-hmm. or gender or it, right. politics. LGBT was part of that as well. Yeah. I recall. Okay. We so. weren't allowed to teach or distribute literature that had any of that at its center. Oh boy. And like, this is the kind of thing where like the idea is that like our teachers are going to start teaching our kids all kinds of cockamamie things if we don't control what they're right. allowed to say. What are we supposed to teach then? <laughs> you know, like, no. Mm-hmm. This is where I mean, this this reeks of totalitarianism so stinkily that <laughs> very much so. And I'm I think that people use the word Orwellian too much. Yes, but that's Orwellian. Yeah, you're you're trying to control what people can think and what ideas people can teach. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the thought police. So January tenth, two thousand twenty-two. McMinn County School Board voted 10 to 0 to remove Mouse from the school's curriculum. Yes. This overrode the list of approved materials, which is an expansive list that the state of Tennessee, I think they published this on the regular about what, you know, these are the good books for the curriculum. It's a lot of books. Mouse was on the list. They said no. And their reasons for it, it included course language, including damn. (gasps) I know. And it also included drawings of nudity. Apparently, in one panel in Mouse, there is a nude drawing of a German woman. So a a cat that is portrayed as... uh, Mind you, a cat that is drawn as nude. Not even like a human. I do not even remember this. I don't remember yeah. either. It and was, even so, it's a cat. Right, right. But, But it's also like one panel in a book that's like... Okay, come on now. It's probably like in the background or somebody has it. It's not even part of the story. It's just, it's there more or less for color. And at the same time, it's like, I don't know if like they looked any depth into the author himself. Like, did you know that Art Spiegelman used to be a contributor to Playboy magazine? He did. Can we trust the words of a person like this? Clearly not. (sighs) So uh, this really caught attention because not long after this vote was January 27th, which is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Mm-hmm. And that's basically when the thing caught fire. When, you know, this is this is not a major school board in Tennessee. You know, this is a very relatively small county um, in, a, in a, a state like that. 
but the world heard about it. Oh, we sure did. <laughs> you know, and like, didn't they said something about depictions of violence too, right? Yes, definitely, and and suicide. Um, okay, big stuff. Those things are there, but you can't teach the Holocaust without teaching about violence. Yeah, it's impossible. You can't do it. So I can't help but be suspicious that the goal is don't teach about the Holocaust. I mean, what it's it's so messed up. Um, Art Spiegelman commented, you know, he had lots to say on it, but he said, I get the impression they wanted to teach a nicer and gentler Holocaust. Yeah. Accurate. You know, and his is his is brutal, you know, mm-hmm. accurate or not. Um, Neil Gaiman said there's only one kind of people who would vote to ban mouse whatever they're calling themselves these days. It's uh-huh. <laughs> like, okay, got some shade on there. Yeah. So here's the cool thing about this is like, you know, this caught me and this was upsetting when I heard about it because, you know, I'd never read Mouse, but I knew what it was about. It's a presentation of the Holocaust, whatever right. that is, whatever context you want to put it in. Okay. We should probably hear about it there. Um, the response was pretty ubiquitous, including people on the Republican side of the aisle, you know, saying like, I'm not really comfortable on Bannon Books. So it went from not being on Amazon Books, top 1,000 books, to being number one. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> congratulations, Art. <laughs> so this was a gigantic... This is like Mariah Carey storming the charts again with uh, All I Want for Christmas is You. Every Christmas. Yeah, it's like she's coming back, baby. <laughs> like this is Art Spiegelman after, you know... 20 years, 30 years off the off the charts. Um, but people have really read it, including me. We are doing this episode because of that. Yes, exactly. So uh, nearby Nirvana Comics, which is in Knoxville, that's about 60 miles away or so. They said that anybody in McMinn County that wanted a copy of Mouse could have one from them for free. So wow. kind of a cool little idea. And it got the word out. And of course, it's a publicity thing. Uh, and the owner of that comic book store actually said, this is not what we do in America. We don't ban books, which is not actually historically accurate, yeah, but I, do, I but... like the spirit. Yeah. Well, we don't ban books anymore. Yeah. <laughs> sure. We, we do, we're doing our best, people, uh, for that. But uh, again, it's like, it really did hearten me when I dug into this a little bit more because it seemed like, you know, this is the direction of our country. And it's like, no, that's not the case. The response pretty much from everybody was, that was real stupid, McMinn uh, School Board. You shouldn't have done that. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, I have a very brief, I won't waste our time too much on this. I have a medical corner. Yay, medical corner. I don't ever not have a medical corner. So this was actually, frankly, it's more for me than you Okay. <laughs> as far as it goes. Um, but it, at the end of his stay in Auschwitz, uh, you may remember that Vladek got typhus. Okay. And I made a mistake because I thought he was talking about typhoid fever. Oh, okay. Which is not typhus. No. They have the same origin. They both mean, I, I believe typhus means fever, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Um, but typhus is actually a condition uh, spread by some rickettsia bacteria. Rickettsia is actually where we get Rocky Mountain spotted fever, most famously. Um, but these are spread by lice. This is a fever. There's a rash that starts on your trunk and it goes out to your extremities. It lasts for a few weeks. Occasionally, it can get into your brain and cause a form of meningitis that can just kill you. But this is jail fever. We've known about it for about 500 years or so. It's been around as long as we've had lice, you know, so that means to say forever. Um, You only get it in the worst of worst conditions, like a jail where there's no maintenance being done. You know, you think about like a a gulag somewhere. You think about a Nazi concentration camp. Like this Mm -hmm. is where this kind of thing happens. Um, And it's, it's interesting because like typhus, it's a condition that we're aware of. But, you know, if you've got, if you ever have typhus, 
that means you have some deep infrastructure problems. Oh. Because uh, you would have had lice that would have had been there for a long, long time. But again, to say, I thought it was, he was talking about typhoid fever, and you think about typhoid Mary, that's actually a form of salmonella. So I thank this podcast for informing me about the difference between typhus and typhoid fever. <laughs> Something I really should have remembered from back on the day. <laughs> Uh, oh, that's funny. What are your final thoughts on this book, Felicia? I think it's an excellent book. I thought it was an excellent book since I first read it. Um, I think it's bullshit that it's being banned and that, I mean, it's just the one county. Yeah, of course. But I do think it's indicative of our larger problems <sighs> that are going on in this country. I mean, I mean, like we talked about, a similar bill in, in Indiana almost passed. <sighs> um, I don't know how they would handle the possible banning of mouse, but... Um, Clearly that we are we're having some issues and this this banning of, of mouse in this one country is indicative of that. You you said um, it. I I it's in the graphic novels canon. It's funny that it's banned in a school board because I don't think it's taught that often. I think one thing that's prohibitive about it though is the cost mm-hmm. and the availability. It's not something that you know, you can order from an education bookstore. Maybe you can. I've looked into it and I was never, never able to find because I wanted oh. to teach it at one point. Okay. But you couldn't I, get like enough of it, you know, like. Not enough of it that would be um, cost effective. That would even be doable. It'd probably be really expensive, I would think. Very expensive. Um, I, I mean, I was never able to find a place that did classroom um, discounts. Mm-hmm. It was just buy the book. I'm sure it exists. I was never able to find it when this was like three, four years ago. Hopefully things have changed (laughs) since then. Um, I think that were it taught, if it is taught, it should continue to be taught. I think it should be taught. I think it would be a really, not just a really good story, but a really effective classroom tool as we were talking about, because comic books and graphic novels can be great for struggling readers. Yes. So it would be effective both in terms of a story and in terms of academics and see now I want to teach it again right it's it's very tempting I mean the 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 problem that limits is you know the number of copies that you have available at any good time Mm -hmm. so it might be the kind of thing where you know you a couple students read it now and a couple students read it later and yeah stagger the classes that's not a bad idea that's a thing to think of so what did you think Ben bowl over Bold over. This was a eye-opening read. I am so happy I read it. I never took any graphic novels courses back in college, but I always kind of wish I had. Um, and I feel like I've kind of regained some ground with myself yeah. for having read it. But d- d- just to cut back to uh, your answer, your question, which I really dodged, uh, was like, this book is canon material. Yeah. I think pretty much anybody, as a fan of graphic novels, anybody can read a graphic novel. Like, I, there are definitely graphic novels out there. This is the top of the pile. If you're going to read a graphic novel, read this one. Yeah, I agree. We did it. That's a wrap. Just to touch on, um, you know, we're doing fancy uh, dress. So we're having our little party wine and cheese party. um, Yes. Or I should say, I should say, we're having our... uh, Sarlatska and cheese party. <laughs> this, but this has been a hell of a lot of fun. I've, I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, it's been nice to be in the same place to do the podcast again. It's yep. been nice doing the whole podcast over the past whole year. We'll we'll keep on going. God, we got good stuff. We were just talking earlier today about what the what the future holds and what books we're going to cover next, and it's going to be some things that you guys have read before. Yeah, so. we're very excited. We've been having a lot of fun reading and talking and deciding.